corner, and there'll be a teacher to meet with you there. Um, please open in your copy of God's Word, open to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 today, and if you don't have a Bible, please uh, pick one up inside of the foyer. Uh, if you don't, if you need a Bible, please take a Bible home with you. We have Bibles out there for that reason that you can uh, know, that you can have, and you can hang on to, or download it on your, on your phone or whatever, but uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to be continuing our look at this book at the origins of the, of the human race and, and the origins of our faith, really going all the way back there. And today we start a series on the story of Noah and ultimately of the great flood and of his ark. So Genesis chapter 6, so if you would, together with me, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Stand as you are able. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth at those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sure, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. This ends the reading of God's word. May add his blessing to the reading of it. You may be seated. And pray together with me if you would. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Um, even the hard parts of your word. Father, the words where we have to wrestle with with. Um, with your true nature against sometimes our conceptions of who you are or who maybe we'd want you to be in, in our vain imagination. But Father, the truth is we want you to be who you are. We want to accept you for how you revealed yourself, Father, in the easy passages and the hard ones. And so we pray, God, that as we look in this, you'd give us ears to hear, give us soft hearts to examine our own lives. Father, give us repentant hearts to look to the Lord Jesus Christ as our own hope. We ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, war seemed um, imminent in 1938, all throughout Europe, and many nations were doing what they could to avoid war from erupting. But, but not Nazi Germany at the time. They were really setting the stage for it. They'd recently annexed the nation of Austria, pulling them into their empire they were building, and they were positioned to uh, move into Czechoslovakia and take it by force. And all of Europe was on edge, watching this happening, knowing that if they did, it could lead to all-out war. And so in order to avoid that, a compromise was made. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, he worked with other European allies to form a compromise. They'd allow Germany to annex a section of, of Czechoslovakia called the, the uh, Sudetenland in exchange for a German promise to leave the rest of Europe alone. The agreement was called the Munich Agreement. 
Well, after the agreement, Germany, according to what they agreed on, they marched um, their military into the Sudanland without any opposition. The world watched on. Uh, Neville Chamberlain uh, boasted of the agreement as being peace with honor, saying that I believe it is peace for our time. Not everybody was so optimistic with it, though. Winston Churchill, for example, said that you were given the chance between war and dishonor, and you chose dishonor, and you will have war. And as people like to say, the rest is history. You know, the agreement didn't hold. Germany used that, that compromise to their own advantage, refusing in the end to abide by the agreement, eventually fighting and defeating much of Europe. There was no compromising with their nationalistic goals. In fact, it was baked into the agreement as it was, what, how this would aid their ultimate uh, progress. Now, we'd like to think that we can compromise with sin. We'd like to think that we can play around with it, that we can invite a little bit into our lives and it won't affect us. But like uh, Europe or Britain with Nazi Germany, it is a losing game. It's a game that we're not going to win. It's a game that will inevitably affect us even if we don't know how it is. We're not aware of it. But it does. Sin does that. As we've been studying Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis 5, we've seen growing violence on the earth, and it's raised this question. The question is, what is God going to do about the violence? What is God going to do about the evil? Now, sure, last week in Genesis 5, we saw a ray of hope. A group of people began to call upon the Lord. Um, it, was, it was the line of Seth. We read about a man named Enoch who walked with God. There was something refreshing going on like a revival. But sometimes revivals don't always last long. And by the time we get to chapter 6, those hopes are dashed. That the, the spark of hope that we'd hope would blaze into just to continue an ongoing fire had all but fizzled out. Even the godly of the land were, more, uh, were, were no more. Things were out of control. Again, growing violence, a lack of order, no worship. And so the question remained, God, what are you going to do about it? And so we see in Genesis 6, he's going to judge the earth. He doesn't tell us how he's going to judge the earth at the beginning. It takes a number of verses to get there, as a matter of fact. But we know what the judgment is. The judgment is going to be a great flood that will lead to the death of every inhabitant of the planet except for one family. When we come face-to-face with God's judgment, it reminds us that holiness matters. It reminds us that sin is a problem. Now, most of the world acts as if sin is not a big deal, that holiness is, 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 doesn't really matter, that it's, holiness is a minor thing. And that's a serious mistake. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, 14, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And there is a judgment that will come against sin. It's a judgment that's repeated throughout the Bible. It's a judgment that even Jesus talks about, and if, I, if I'm aware, almost more than anything else, there's a judgment of God in hell. Now, people don't want to talk about judgment. We don't want to talk about hell. We don't like to talk about God's judgment that leads to death. But if we're going to be faithful to God, if we're going to be faithful to the message of the Bible, uh, we are going to talk about it because God talks about it. Righteousness matters. 
The righteousness of a nation matters. Your righteousness matters. My righteousness matters. But we also have a great hope that we ground ourselves in. Our sins are many, but your mercy is more. There's a grace of God that delivers. So today we're going to look at God's judgment. We're going to see God's judgment as it works its way out on Noah, or on, on the, the timeline of Noah, on this Genesis chapter 6 timeline. We're going to see how it relates to us today. We're going to see a hope that was there inside of this Genesis 6, and where our hope is going to be found, where it needs to be found. So we have five things today we want to look at God's judgment as he discusses it uh, just before he brings the flood upon the earth. The first thing that we're going to see is that God's judgment is just. God's judgment is just. In Genesis 3, sin enters into the world and things begin to go downhill from there. Sin and evil, they spread out upon the earth. Now let's see what happens in uh, Genesis 6. Genesis 6. But, but before I do, just remember Genesis 5 from last week, we saw a group of people called the descendants of Seth. And it's, we're told that they called upon the name of the Lord. Again, that's that ray of hope. Now apparently that these people stopped calling upon God's name. It just, you know, fades, it fizzles. So verse 1 and 2, it shows how they're walking away from God. Verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, and the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took their wives, they took as their wives any they chose. Verse 3, uh, verse 4 goes on to say, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and after afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of old, the men of, of renown. That was a couple different interpretations, two primary interpretations of this passage. You know, who are these sons of God? Who are these Nephilim that were, were upon the earth? And a good number, a number of very good commentators believe that these uh, sons of God is a reference to angelic beings who entered into marriage relationships and even uh, pro, procreative relationships uh, with human beings. Um, as a matter of fact, a couple of years ago, I held that interpretation as I was looking through the book of First Peter. Um, I don't really think that's the case anymore. If I had more chance to look in this and to, to research it and to, and to look at arguments for and against that. I mean, angelic beings didn't have bodies. Um, they don't have the ability to procreate. They don't enter into marriage relationships. And, and so the view that, um, that angels and these humans have a physical relationship might be a common view, but I, I don't think it's the best, most viable view inside of this, this text. But another way to understand it would be to understand the daughters of men as being children from the family of Cain. Remember Cain? Talked about him in chapter 4. Cain was the family of violence, the family of murderous threats. They had no place for God in their lives and, and you know, represents that group of people. The sons of God would have been referenced to the, the family of Seth, Talked about them last week in Genesis chapter 5. Ones who had previously called upon the name of the Lord. Commentators will look and say that early readers probably would have understood this as, as it was written. But what you see here, then, if that's the case, is this interchange between violence and righteousness. Right? A marriage. Trying to, to marry these two things together. 
molding these two, two things together. And over time, which one continued to grow? Which one that is, uh, which one dominated? Which one was extinguished? And apparently people were choosing violence over God. If you look at verse 2, it says, they took as their wives any they chose. It seems to indicate that they gave uh, no regard to God's commands on this. They didn't pray about those they would have as wives. They didn't listen to God's word. They didn't consider the ramifications of their marriage. As a believer and unbeliever or follower of God and not follower of God were united in marriage from generation to generation. That love that was there, that spark that was there, that fire that began to, to grow, well, that was put out. The love of God grew cold. This is often what happens when we don't, it, actually it's not often what happens, it is what will happen if we don't prayerfully make our decisions in light of God's word. We're not praying and bringing the big decisions we have towards the Lord. It's what happens when we don't commit to the Lord on the decisions of greatest importance. Here you see generational drift. This family faith just sort of fizzles out. So I want to encourage young people that as you uh, look towards marriage, to resolve today, to resolve every day, that you would marry only in the Lord as the Bible commands. I mean, your love for God, as strong as it may be, can grow cold. That you can find yourself someday in your future in a spot that you never thought you'd be in. Who you marry will make a gigantic difference in the direction that you and your family go especially when it comes to matters of faith. And I've seen a number of Christians earnest in seeking the Lord early, that they didn't regret, that, that they regret they didn't see God before choosing to marry that guy. Or before they asked that young lady to be his bride. I've seen great, um, I've seen godly people dump their faith for marriage, to marry outside the Lord, only to reap those consequences Later. You know, resolve now, resolve continually to marry in the Lord and then pray. Pray that about who God would have you marry. Pray that God would make you into a marriable person. Pray that God would help you to marry in the faith. And parents, I mean, it is not too early ever to be praying for your child to marry a godly person. It's important to set that before the Lord. Well, if we move down to verse 5, we see how bad things got. Genesis 6, 5, we read that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We talk about God's judgment. It is a just judgment. God knows everything that goes on in the hearts of people. He knows all of our actions. He knows what we say. He even knows what we think. He's a standard of goodness. And as a standard of goodness, he is able to properly evaluate the depth of wickedness. We don't have that ability. We can make mistakes here and there, but, but God knows. And God saw the wickedness of man that was great upon the earth. And the world just cries out to him in it. If you look at verses 11 through 13, I don't have a slide on this, but verse 11 through 13, it shows the violence that is happening. Verse 11, Genesis 6, 11, now, the earth was corrupt. You're going to see that word three times. I like to underline repeated words. You're going to see that word actually three times here. The word was corrupt in God's sights, and the earth was filled with violence. That's another one. That happens twice. Right? Repeated words, you know, that's kind of the main thrust of things. You're going to see that twice. 
So the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That was the verdict of the generation during Noah's day. Could also be the verdict about our own generation. You know, this is still a description of, well, especially verse 5 is a description of the human heart. As we look around us, there's still great wickedness on the earth. Violence, theft, sexual exploitation, depravity. The human heart has not changed since Noah's day. I mean, verse 5 is written about you and me even now. It's written about people today. Now, our next point, as we look towards the justice of God in judgment, it really follows on this because it talks about God's feelings in judgment. Because we see in verse 6, our second point, that God's judgment is sorrowful. Look at what verse 6 says. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. I mean, this is, this is a sad statement because it shows just how far man had declined by this point. Remember back in Genesis 1.31 where God had created a man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And he ends that sixth day in saying, it was very good. We can look back to the end of chapter 2 where we see God bring Adam and Eve together in their marriage relationship. And we really see the pinnacle of this relational time together. And you just rejoice at it. It's a celebration. And here, verse 6 Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. That's lost. We see the sorrow of God in it. The violence, the murderous threats, the false worship, all these things cry out to God about the evil of the world. And can you imagine being God and hearing all the atrocities of the world in a place where no one wants to do what's right or what's good? Now, I heard this news story that happened right before Christmas, and it really made me shudder with the, the thoughts of this. And here's the headline of it. TikTok sued by former content moderator for allegedly failing to protect her mental health. Okay, so I'm going to talk about this. Um, if you don't know, TikTok, it's a website and, or it's an app. And what people do is they upload short videos. And most of the time, they're funny. They're innocuous. Maybe they teach something. Maybe they learn, you know, maybe there's something you can learn through it. Um, but, you know, TikTok is this idea for short videos. Facebook has something like it. Instagram has something like it. But just in terms of its sheer educational value or sheer entertainment value, I'm told that, you know, TikTok is kind of the thing that you'd want to watch. It's, it's fun. You know, they, they have a rule, though. It has to be short. It has to be three minutes or less. And it's something that has things regularly updated. They have moderators in order to fill out, ensure that no illegal, objectionable material comes on the internet, comes on their site. And so if somebody sees something, they would remove it. Now, you, know, you may say, well, what's their standard of, of inappropriate? And, you know, you know well, let's talk about that. You know, we're not going to talk about that. But, you know, but just imagine there's legal things that could be presented. They want to make sure those things aren't there. Now, here's how the moderators do this, right? They always have three to ten videos going at a time on their screen, right? So they're watching three to ten videos of these up to three-minute videos going at a time. They work for 12 hours at, at, at a shot. They get 15-minute breaks every four or two hours. 
And so there's constantly watching, you know, human video after human video after human video of things that are happening through the day, 12 hours a day. You know, I mean, it, it has a little godlike sort of perspective, doesn't it? I mean, you're just watching constant human activity all day, multiple that's, you know, multiple ways. But what you see if you re- go, as we go on the story is that we can't handle what God sees and what he regularly deals with, right? So what happened is for these um, people and why there's a lawsuit, this woman said that TikTok did not adequately protect their mental health. Sure, most of the videos, they're innocuous, they're humorous, they're funny, they're safe, they're all those things. But that did not spare her from witnessing, quote, thousands of acts of extreme and graphic violence including mass shootings, child rape, animal mutilation, cannibalism, gang murder, and genocide. As a result of her work, this woman says that she has suffered severe psychological trauma, including depression and symptoms associated with anxiety and PTSD. She has trouble sleeping, and when she does sleep, she has horrific nightmares. She often lays awake at night trying to go to sleep replaying videos she has seen in her mind. She has severe and debilitating panic attacks. You know, I mean, this is one person watching constant videos as a part of her job, 12 hours a day, and she can't take it, right? We can't see, take seeing these things and not be changed. We can't see these things and not be sorrowful or affected in it. We can't watch people die and not be deeply affected by that. And if we can't take it, you know, we have to say, why would God tolerate it? You know, would it not grieve him to see that violence? And the scale that he sees it is far greater than this woman ever saw. I mean, he sees every act. He, you know, if you multiply the horror after horror after horror, um, you know, it, it, we can't even grasp in the evil that God saw this day and that God sees in our own day. And it's not just replayed out there either. It's replayed inside of our own hearts inside of our own lives, inside of our own actions, the sin in our own lives and the way that we've sinned against him and others. And what would you do if someone is using your name, your powers, your gifts, your money, your capabilities for the manipulation and exploitation of others? Would you stop them? No one was stopping this unchecked evil. And so God decides to stop it. When Romans 3.23 says that we have fallen short of the glory of God, it shows us a grief, God's grief over sin. We're supposed to be representatives of God's glory, of his goodness, of his grace, and we've used it to represent evil, selfishness. We're all guilty of sin. You've seen the sin of each and every one of us. If you look at verse 6, the Hebrew word for grief there is the same root word that is used for the word pain. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 3, you know, there was a curse that was given after Adam and Eve ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the woman would have pain in childbearing. And Adam would have pain in working this thorny ground. Well, what's God's pain? The evil in the world is his pain. Your sin is his pain. My sin is his pain. And the pain in his heart ended up a pain in his son, a physical pain. And so remember, as we look at this, that God is a person. 
You know, God is not some impersonal force that's out there. And as a person, there are our feelings. Now, he handles his feelings differently than you and I do. You know, when we have feelings, we often go into sinful behavior, don't we? When we're angry, we, we, we hurt. When we're lonely, we lust. When we're anxious, we overeat. Uh, but God is not ruled by his feelings. He's not changed by his feelings. 1 Samuel 15, 29 talks about that. I will not lie or have regret. He's not a man that he should have regret, it says. So what does Genesis 6, 6 say that God has regret? I mean, it's given to us as an anthropomorphism, you know, an expression that uses human language to help us understand something about God that we can't always comprehend the depth of. We know that God is a person. He's an unchanging person. He's an impassioned person, um, but yet he is one who grieves over sin. Not surprised by sin, but grieving over sin. How can a loving God send people to hell? I remember, I remember that was a question I asked before I became a Christian. How can a loving God send people to hell? And when people dismiss hell as to being too severe of an idea, they fail to realize who God is. It is far too easy to invent a God of our own imagination. It's far too easy for us to dismiss God's holiness, to dismiss the severity of sin, but sin is rebellion against the divine creator. It's taking all that is his and is using it contrary to his will, maybe even against his will, maybe even against him. It's a rejection of his creative purposes for us. So our world may not like the idea of divine judgment, but as we look at the justice of God, as we look at the, the, the depravity of sin, you know, we see the reality of divine, just, of divine judgment. God's justice in doing it. The third thing we want to look at today is the patience of God's justice. The patience of God's judgment. This is especially in verse 3. We read this. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide a man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. While things were so bad that God could have come down immediately and just done the flood and just taken care of things, in his kindness he gives 120 years to prepare people for repentance. Because 120 years before he's going to judge the earth to see if there's any righteous or anyone who would serve him. Now, some people interpret the passage, and it's really easy to do, to say that this is really a limit of man's lifespan. Sometimes we think that, like, okay, so man's lifespan is limited 120 years. We've had these old people live long lives, and their lifespan is going to start shrinking. But it's not about, I don't think it's best about that. That's not the best explanation of that 120 years. I think that, that the best explanation, this is a warning which is given of a judgment that's to come. If you remember the story of Jonah, right? Jonah goes into Nineveh and he preaches a sermon, shortest sermon ever, but he says, in 40 days, God's going to judge Nineveh. It's kind of like that. In 120 years, God is going to judge the earth. People know it's coming. Will they do anything about it? Will anybody repent? God's not going to contend with man forever. He invites us to Netflix. It's called but that the brief explanation that was in there um, was telling, and even about this day um, of, of, of um, Noah. Inside the story, there's an asteroid which is discovered, and it's going to, in six months and 14 days, destroy the earth. It's like predicted, it's calculated, it's certain and confirmed. It's going to happen. Here's the, the summary of the movie in Netflix. It says, two astronomers go on a giant media tour to warn mankind of a planet-killing comet hurtling towards planet Earth. The response from a distracted world? 
meh. And it goes on to describe what, what that life is like. Genesis 6, 1 through 8 could be summarized like this. God speaks to mankind to warn of a planet-wide judgment where all will die. The response of a planet of a distracted world, meh. And how many of us? Because this is a good description of what God did in Noah's life that made him different. Remember, it's God's grace that's at work. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, they describe what the world's like, and they describe you and me. They describe what we share with the world by ourselves, apart from Christ. It says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Right? That describes us. We love sin. We love trespass. It says following the course of the world. That was us. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's, that's the devil and his temptations. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, we went along with things, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, doing what our bodies want, no matter what God says, carrying out the desires of the flesh, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Like that's our world. That's, that was Noah's world. And then you get to verse 4. What do you see in verse 4? That spectacular three-letter word, but, right? And shows that if anything is different in us, that is the grace of God that is at work. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of that great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and all kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, made alive, made different, renewed, set on a new path, set in a new direction, poured out God's immeasurable riches of his grace. Why was Noah different? Because God's favor rested upon him. He lived in God's grace. Noah. Noah would have been condemned to die in the flood like the rest of humanity. But God saved him. There was you and I, condemned in the judgment of God from all, for all eternity. But God saved us. And so, dear believer, do you know that you have God's favor also? God showed his mercy to Noah. God showers his mercy upon you and I. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Why was Noah different? God's grace. Why would Noah be saved? God's grace. Is there anything different in you? That's God's grace. God's grace is unmerited favor towards sinners. It's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve, but it is something we give thanks for. It is something that we receive, and it is something that we live in as we turn for the world and we turn towards Christ. We find a promise of forgiveness in him. Salvation from the wrath of God. We were children of wrath like everyone else, but now God has lavished his grace upon us and called us his children, his beloved children. Look at verse 8 and 9. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So would you be saved from the judgment to come? You seek the favor of God. I mean, stop seeking the favor of man. Go to God in prayer. Go to him in Bible reading. Go to him in worship. Ask him to reveal his grace to you. 
You don't need to be condemned along with the world. You can escape. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. When God saved Noah, he reminds us his ultimate purpose is to save and it isn't to condemn. Again, getting back to John 3.17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus. There's no need to enter judgment. Jesus entered judgment to rescue you from God's judgment. Take his salvation. Take his gift. Look to Jesus Christ and be saved. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have made an escape from judgment. We give you thanks for that because we know that our actions, our words, and our hearts condemn us. But God, you made an escape, and that's in Jesus Christ. God, Father, forgiveness is an act of your sovereign grace. Thank you, God, for that gift. Help us, Father, to know it. Help us to live it. Help us to receive it with gratitude. And Father, 